Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. No one. All right. That's how it's going to be today. All right. Revelation chapter 12 is where we are going to be. If you have your pew Bibles, that's page 1925, 1925. And you might be wondering why on the day after Christmas we're turning to Revelation. And in my mind, I'm partially wondering the same thing. And so as you turn there, a little bit about the book of Revelation Um, Revelation is what is called apocalyptic. It is a specific genre of the scripture. We have a few instances of apocalyptic literature. It was written by a man named John, most probably the disciple of Jesus, the beloved disciple in the latter half of the first century. The book of Revelation is shrouded in mystery, and for 2,000 years it has spun off fanciful and almost conspiratorial ideas. But here's what we want to argue today. The argument for today is we take, as Richard often says, a hermeneutic principle. The hermeneutic principle is that the book of Revelation cannot mean for us something that it did not mean to the original audience. Or said another way, we are after, we are trying to discover the original meaning of the text, how the original recipients would have interpreted this. And today I'm going to argue that the text we're looking at is the shot heard around the world. And so before we dive into the scripture, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Bow with me, if you will. Father, this morning we are coming before your very throne room. And Lord, in a real and spiritual way, we believe that you are here with us in the midst of us. And so we look to you this morning. We know that when you are exalted, lives are transformed. And so help us to hear your word. Give us ears to hear, not for the sake of simply hearing, but so that that hearing might lead to heartfelt transformation that lasts forever. Lord, not simply so that we might be transformed, but that we might then go and transform the heart of this city as you have called us to do. So, Father, help us to hear your word now. Give us ears to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, it starts this way. It says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. There are in history and throughout history certain events that cause or, or maybe set forth a series of dominoes that transform everything. There are certain events, and you can go back throughout history and look and find these almost in every century, but 
events, happenings, instances that almost seem predestined by God that transform our everyday lives. When Dan Carlin, who is a historian and host of, po- uh, sorry, podcast host of Hardcore History, when he was asked about the most influential event of the 20th century, he immediately said, June 28th, 1914. Now, if you're not familiar with June 28th, 1914, it's when a young Bosnian Serb named Gavrilo Princip conspired with five other radicals in an attempt to assassinate Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Now, if you know the story, you know that that conspiratorial plot went haywire. A series of just insane events led to the plan being thrown to the side and given up on. And and so it was what they thought was a wash. Gavrilo Princip went to a local deli and he got a sandwich to eat for lunch. And through some weird series of events, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand pulled up in his vehicle right out front of the deli. And Gavrilo pulled off the assassination with two shots from a Browning semi-automatic handgun. And it was called The Shot Heard Around the World. That led to Europe declaring war, which led to the entire world being plunged into the tailspin of World War I. That gave rise to Nazi Germany, which led to World War II which Dan Carlin then goes on to argue over the course of several hours, and I will say several hours if you listen to his podcast, that that transformed the entire world as we know it to the point where if you want to get on an airplane today, TSA is the fault of Gavrilo Princip. So you can thank him for that. You see, it's this event that was one domino that led into another domino that led into another that transformed the course of history that affects every single one of us in this room today. And here's my argument for today. Just yesterday, we celebrated the shot heard around the world in the most ultimate and cosmic sense that there can be. You see, yesterday we all gathered, and if you were here on Christmas Eve, there were four services to celebrate the birth of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ Child. And we celebrated that yesterday morning as we woke up and had presents and we gathered with family and we had a good meal and we read from Luke chapter 2 or whatever Bible passage that you read from yesterday morning. And we celebrated, and here's the argument, is that Revelation chapter 12 is a retelling of Luke chapter 2, the birth narrative of Jesus, as the most astronomical, significant shot heard around the world. The birth of Jesus necessarily affects everything. Well, does it affect? It affects everything. Well, what about this? It affects everything. My life, your life, the room that we sit in right now, the very air that we breathe, the zeitgeist of the day, the birth of Jesus affects everything. Now, there's some groundwork that we have to do to get there. There's some work that we have to do to interpret the book of Revelation. And remember, Revelation cannot mean for us something that it did not read to the original audience. So when, when you read Revelation, the locusts aren't Apache helicopters. The beast is not a politician you don't like. I'm sorry, that's just not what it is. So let's look at it. Revelation chapter 12, 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. 
a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now, the easiest assumption here is that this is the Virgin Mary about to give birth, right? As we read this, we would look and go, oh, that's easy. I can get that one. That's, that's the one low-hanging fruit of the book of Revelation. But here, here's something to think about. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the 39 books of what we call the Old Testament, the covenant community of God, the people of Israel, were said to be giving birth to the Messiah. In fact, I would argue that this can't be the Virgin Mary because of what happens later on in the chapter, and we'll get there. But you have this woman who is clothed with 12 stars. She is, she is clothed with the sun, shining bright like the radiance of God. I would argue that this is the covenant community. It's not Mary. This is the people of God, and they are bringing forth the Messiah. And the child is the Messiah. And then we get this, verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. Now, who do we think that is? Anyone? Satan. This, this dragon, this once serpent turned into a dragon, this powerful red, this murderous being. Jesus said that Satan was a murderer from day one. And, and can we say something? The, the crowns and the heads and his tail knocks a third of the stars out of the sky. One, this can't be literal. Because how could a dragon's tail knock stars out of the sky? They're millions of light years away. And two, the stars have already fallen out of the sky like three times in the book of Revelation. So what's going on here? It's showing the universality of the power of Satan. That he has been granted authority as we hear from the book of Revelation. And, and can we talk for a second? Can we just be honest for a minute? For as much as we don't like talking about Satan, he's a very real and present figure all throughout the scriptures. For as much as we get uncomfortable discussing this Satan, this prince of demons, uh, even saying it out loud from the pulpit seems odd to me. It seems uncomfortable. But for as much as we shy away from talking about him, he sure is active in the scriptures. He sure is present. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, there's this scene where Satan comes before Jesus and he gives him three temptations. And then at the end of those temptations, when Jesus wasn't thwarted by him, when he didn't go astray by them, it says that Satan went away for now for an opportune time. And Satan continually shows back up in the life of Jesus. We're told that Judas was deceived by Satan. We're told that Satan was the one who caused Peter to stumble and fall and deny Jesus three times. We have an enemy, First Presbyterian Church. And that enemy is powerful. That enemy does not want to see us prosper. That enemy does not want to see us be successful. That enemy does not want to see us tapping into life and depth and vitality and joy. We have an enemy that wants to derail us. He's powerful. Verse 4, His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. 
She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The dragon sits perched, waiting to devour the child. Does this sound like Matthew chapter 2 to anyone? When Jesus was born, King Herod issued a decree that all children under the age of two should be put to death. This is the cosmic retelling of an ongoing war. This is John retelling the hope that is found in the gospel because here's what happens. She gives birth to a son, a male child, and that child is snatched up to God. Satan could not thwart Jesus Christ. You see, whether you came to Christmas Eve services or whether you stayed home, whether you're joining us online or you're here in person, whether you read the Christmas story yesterday or you had another tradition, here's the true understanding of Christmas, that not only was Jesus born as a baby, lowly in a manger, but a warrior prince was born into this world to push back the forces of darkness that would dissuade you and I from following. God. Amen? That we have an enemy and that enemy is powerful and we have a God that is infinitely more powerful. And he sent his son. And that son had laser-like focus in his mission here on earth. Jesus couldn't be perturbed. He couldn't be detracted. He couldn't be um, thrown off course of his mission. Jesus had laser-like focus. His eyes were set on the cross. The book of Revelation elsewhere says, Behold the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundations of the world. Jesus' death and His perfect life and His resurrection and His ascension were the plan from the foundation of the world. God has won the war. But the fight's not over. Verse 6, the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then skip down to verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. And then it goes on and on. And here's what we find. That after this war in heaven, the serpent, the dragon, Satan, the Hasatan in Hebrew, the accuser, he turns his attention, his persecuting zeal, not to Jesus because Jesus has won the war, but he turns it to the church. Remember we said that the woman was the covenant community of God. It was the chosen people of God, the, the nation Israel, And as we learn throughout the New Testament, the covenant community is now the church. He turns his persecuting zeal to the church. Can I ask you a question? Do you think that when Satan was hurled out of heaven, he just threw his hands in the air and goes, well, good game. You guys won. I'll take the L. Do you think he just gives up? No. A lot of us, we we wrestle with the brokenness of the reality we live in. 
We wonder why there is widespread pandemic. We wonder why there is hurt. We wonder why there is racism. We wonder why there is sexism. We wonder why there is bigotry. We wonder why people are treated unjustly or just why bad things happen to good people. It's not random happenstance, folks. The scriptures are very clear that there is an enemy and his persecuting zeal is focused towards the very people of God. Satan hates the church. Look, let's just be honest. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says, go forth into the nations making disciples, teaching them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our marching orders as a church are twofold. One, to glorify God. Really, I'd argue they're onefold. One, to glorify God, and two, to make disciples. That's what we have to do. That is the purpose of what we're doing here. That is what Jesus kicked off as he was born in a manger, as he was risen from the grave, as he ascended to the right hand of God the Father and was snatched up into heaven to God. We have two things that we have to do. Lift God high and make Him beautiful to a culture that does not see Him as beautiful. And make disciples out of that culture when they see Jesus for as beautiful as He truly is. That is our twofold purpose. Do you think Satan is going to fight against that? Yes. Tooth and nail. And Claire said earlier, family on mission. And that's what we want here at First Presbyterian Church. There is nothing that Satan wants more than to take your family off of mission. And look, I'm not a doomsday prepper. I'm not some, you know, left behind kind of guy. But folks, we have to deal with this reality. Because we just opened a children's building and pretty soon we'll be opening another building for this church. And it is going to be the launching point for this church transforming the heart of the city. We're already doing that. Do you not think Satan's going to fight back against us, that there will come persecution, that there will come hardship, there will come pain, maybe even infighting? Because he will stop at nothing to slow us down. 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us to be aware of the schemes of the devil. So how does this persecuting dragon how does the serpent go about persecuting us two ways that we'll talk about today and then if i had time a third but we don't (laughs) unless you want to stay and then we can do that the first way is found in verse 10 then i heard a loud voice in heaven say now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our god and the authority of christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. We see this in the book of Job. In the book of Job, we learn that in some way, in some odd capacity, Satan had audience before God and he was able to accuse Job. In fact, in Hebrew, the word Satan is actually hasatan. It means the accuser, literally. The one who makes accusations. Don't you feel accused sometimes? I mean, because we live in a day and age of accusation, right? Bigot, hateful, backwards, ignorant, not making progress. We live in a cancel culture where for things that you say or maybe even things that you don't say, you can get in trouble. And I'm not talking about little trouble. I'm talking about big, big trouble and accusations can come against you. But, But those are things that seem far off in many ways. What about that little accusation in the back of your mind when you're laying down going to sleep 
and everybody in the house is quiet and the TV's off and there's nothing to distract you. And that little voice goes, are you sure God loves you? Or, or that little voice that says, you know, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't have done that thing. You wouldn't have gone that far. Or you wouldn't have struggled with this sin for so long if you were really transformed by God. Or that little voice of accusation in the back of your mind that brings up the sins that you committed in, let's say, college. Or that time that you were dishonest in your dealings. And there's that persistent voice of accusation that nags at us. That says you're not good enough. You're not loved. You're not saved. You're not forgiven. That your debt, your record of wrongdoing has not been canceled. How could God love you? And here's the thing about accusation. It doesn't hold power until we buy in, right? Who cares about accusation until you actually start believing it? Because some of us have an internal narrative that says, you know what? I'm not good enough. I'm not forgiven. I'm not saved. Yes, I know that God can love you, but how could he love me? Because I know the things I've done. I know how far I've gone. I know what I've wrestled with. How could he love me? An accusation is one of Satan's greatest tools against the church. Because it takes some of the best players in this game. It takes some of the best fighters in the war and he puts them on the bench. Because they're so occupied with their own internal struggles and the wrestlings of the mind and the matrications of their own self-doubt that it renders them useless for the kingdom. Accusation. The second way is deceit. Verse 9, that great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He deceives us. Um, on Christmas Eve, my daughter... <laughs> Shocking, I know what I'm about to say. It was very hyper. Um, she was excited and she didn't want to go to sleep because she knew that within, I guess at that point, about 10 hours that Santa Claus was going to come and visit and that there were going to be presents under the tree. So she was hyper. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how on earth are we going to get this girl to sleep? And so we lay down in the bed and I'm basically pinning her down. It feels like I'm, you know, like a wrestling champion holding her down and <clears throat> Finally, we pull out our secret weapon. Um, our secret weapon is this app called Mashi, and it's these recorded bedtime stories. It's like lullabies, but they're little stories. And there's one that will make her fall asleep every time. And if you're a parent in the room, take note of this. It's called Sleepy Paws. So we pulled out Sleepy Paws, and my daughter is, I mean, she's just talking up a storm, talking, talking, talking. Finally, we hit Sleepy Paws, and I see her. Um, the excitement begins to give way to fatigue. And slowly her eyes get heavier and heavier. And finally she opens her eyes and blinks for the last time that evening. And she goes to sleep. And it worked like a charm. What if... What if Satan didn't always attack us with accusations? What if sometimes Satan uses deceit to slowly and gently lull us to sleep? What, what if sometimes Satan just whispers lullabies into our ears so that we as the people of God are rendered ineffective because we're just sitting on the sidelines asleep. Shh, 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 shh. Just go to sleep. Hey, 
hey, don't worry about that. Don't worry about your prayer life. There's a prayer team at the church. They've got it covered. Hey, shh, 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 shh. Don't worry about reading the scripture. The game is on. Hey, shh, 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 shh. Does the city really even need to be transformed? You see, my fear is not that First Pres doesn't have the potential to transform the heart of the city. My genuine fear about First Pres, and I'm just being honest here, is that we have unlimited potential, but that we're going to be lulled to sleep by Satan. Just pick up your phone. See what's happening on Instagram. I mean, and let's just be honest. Why would we need Satan to attack us in a full frontal attack? Like demonic, let's just take demonic possessions in the Bible. Why would we need that when we have cell phones? Why would Satan need to send his demons when we have Netflix? And we have limitless distractions to appease our appetite and our constant thirst for more. And we're not kingdom-minded because we're so earth-minded. And I'll be honest, one of the most damaging things to my soul is what's called the screen time app on my phone because every Sunday morning, and it happened this morning, every Sunday morning it tells me exactly how long I've spent on my phone each day. I am ashamed to utter, (laughs) I'll let you guys talk amongst yourselves with that one, but I'm ashamed to utter how long I spend on my cell phone each day. Distraction. You see, the church in the East, the, the, the church in, let's say, Iran, the fastest growing church in the world, is suffering true persecution. Their families are being put to death. It's illegal to be a Christian. They're, they're being persecuted. They're feeling the press of Satan. And we here, we in the West, we've been so distracted by our success. We've been so distracted by things and stuff that we've just been pacified and put to sleep. But here's the good news, church. The shot has already been fired, and the shot heard around the world is still ringing true today. The book of Hebrews tells us we have a great high priest who intercedes on our behalf. We don't fight this fight alone. And so today, maybe, maybe a few things. Maybe you need to ask yourself, one, what lies have you bought into? What accusations about yourself have you started to believe? Because maybe you've been sidelined and you're ineffective and you're out of the fight because you've been believing for so long that Jesus doesn't love you. You've been buying into the lie for so long that you sinned this one time or you have this habitual sin that you commit and it's so egregious that God doesn't care about you anymore. And I want to tell you, here it is, that's a lie. And it's Satan's tactic to throw you off course. What what lie have you bought into? What accusation have you given power to and you're affirming in your own life? And two, what lullabies are you listening to? What, what sleepy time story have you put on play in your mind? Some of us need to wake up. You know, the scriptures say his joy comes in the morning. Morning is not a time of day. Morning is when you wake up. What do you need to do to wake up? What do you need to do to be a family on mission? Maybe for some of you today, you need to repent. 
And you need to pull your family around and you need to read the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 and say, you know what? Our family is going to be on mission. Because you have a role to play. Your family has a role to play. Dads, you have a job. Moms, you have a job. Lead your families well. Raise your children well. Disciple them in the ways of the Lord, parents. And help them and send them out to transform the heart of the city. Employees, you have a job. You have a job to transform your workplace for the gospel and the glory of God. Business owners, you have an obligation. And it's to make your business a place where the gospel goes forth. When you're at the gym and you're lifting weights or you're taking a class, whatever it might be, you have a job to do. You have an obligation and it's that you should be pushing back the darkness that has crept into that gym. And you should be learning the names of the people around you and praying for them. Wherever you are, God has put you there to fight back against the devil and his schemes. Do not sit on the sidelines of the greatest story ever told, because if there's something that I know, especially about men, it's that we want to be a part of something bigger than us. We want to be a part of stories and greatness, and we fantasize about these things. And this is your chance. Don't miss it. Because the dragon has been cast down and he has been defeated. First Pres, let's pray. Father, we are fully aware that Satan has been defeated and yet we still buy into his tactics time and time again. And so I ask, Lord, that today we would wise up to the devil in simply knowing some of these tactics that can help us to prevent being a victim to them. And so, Father, I pray that we would not look to Revelation as um, finding out which politician is this and what the mark of the beast is and, and whatever it might be, but that we can see it as the church and that we can see it as the church transforming people and the enemy desperately trying to fight a losing war. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue in worship, that our hearts would be transformed, that we would wake up Because that baby born in a manger was, yes, gentle and lowly. And yes, he was a warrior king. And we celebrate that he has drafted us into his army as well. And so, Father, we thank you for the victory that you have already won. Help us to stand in that victory in our own lives, in the lives of our family, and in the lives of those around us. We love you, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.